0: All right. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. And we have a really wonderful episode going on today of the CEO story. We've got Brian Sloan, who is the founder and CEO of AutoBlow.com. That's right. You heard me. AutoBlow.com. Brian, thank you for taking the time to join us. Can you share a little bit about what you do and your company? Yeah,
1: sure. Uh, uh, I invent uh, sex toys for men uh mainly a device for men an automatic device for men called the AutoBlow and uh yeah i invented the device i manufactured the device and we market and sell that uh online and to, we sell that to thousands of offline retailers globally
0: amazing so that is such an interesting kind of industry and segment to be involved in can we just rewind a little bit because initially you started off at law school but never really practiced law so can we share a little bit about your background you've had a great experience over in china and all around the world and what kind of led you into this industry and obviously made it very successful for yourself
1: yeah so uh, after college, uh, like a lot of people who didn't know what to do with themselves, I went to law school. And um, yeah, law school was a fantastic experience. Uh, it, it, but one year, when I was in law school, I started to meet people who were lawyers, and I noticed a trend um, of unhappiness amongst them. Uh, almost all of them were unhappy with their career choices. Uh, and it happened that while I was in law school, a friend of mine took me to uh, an antique auction and I bought an old Monopoly game there. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I could flip that on eBay. So I bought this old game. I made something like $100 selling it on eBay. And that really spun me in a different direction. Uh, I realized that uh, working as a lawyer, being paid by the hour, uh, wasn't going to really ever be scalable for me. And uh, at least at that time, what I knew was that selling things was at least more scalable than uh, working as a lawyer. So. Uh, during law school i started buying things from antique auctions selling them on ebay and uh, when i got to the end of law school i realized that uh i would just wanted to continue doing that so uh, long story short i i then went back to chicago started buying from bankruptcy auctions selling stuff on ebay eventually going to china to buy things to sell on ebay and then this later led me to uh yeah you
0: you mentioned that first Flip that you did that kind of got you hooked in in the world of entrepreneurship, let's say. But this was after you'd already started your law degree. Yeah. What would you, if you could have done things differently prior to starting Mm -hmm. your law degree or had some advice, what would that be for someone? Uh, I mean, I, I don't think that it was a mistake
1: that I went to law school. I think that I had a fantastic experience. I think it let me sharpen my brain in many ways that helped me later sharpen my skills. Uh, But uh, I think that people uh, often tie education to career. And I think for all of the most successful people I know, education is not tied to career uh, at all. People think, well, I'll go learn about this thing. And then I'll do that thing that I learned about in my degree. The degree is interesting. And it's a good way to meet people and learn about new ideas. But I think, uh, at least for the successful, most successful people I I know, the degree wasn't related to what they ended up doing later. So I think to tie those two
0: things together is very limiting. Interesting. Okay. Uh, And then uh, you fast forwarded into doing more flips. Then what got you from the antique dealership into the bankruptcy auctions? That was a big step. So, uh, auctions in general, you know, I saw I could
1: buy things from antique auctions. That was interesting. I had an interesting market for that in South Central Pennsylvania, where people weren't really selling on eBay, but once law school finished and I didn't have a great supply of these antique auctions, I just realized I need to buy other stuff because around Chicago, there there aren't 20 antique auctions every day. And uh, I discovered that there were still a ton of auctions, but just not for antiques. They were bankruptcy auctions. So at that time, uh, and, and, and all the time, factories were going on of business, uh, stores were closing. Uh, uh, mainly it was factories or businesses closing. So I just started learning about all different kinds of auctions by attending the auctions and, uh, and buying what I could buy low and selling you know, on, on eBay. So it was really just necessity that made me move from antiques to uh, bankruptcy auctions.
0: And then was there a lot of trial and error in terms of what hit and what made you money or, and what didn't or what was kind of some of the methodology or thinking behind certain purchases
1: well at so at the time uh, i was sort of obsessed at that time with ebay i spent you know i think hours every day looking at the finished auctions on ebay to understand the value of all kinds of things at, at the height of my auction going i would walk into a a room and i would say Ah, I, I know how much you know, those tables go for this kind of light or that chair or that espresso machine or whatever. So um, mainly it was uh, learning what was uh, what would, what the value of all kinds of objects were uh, and even weird objects. You know, I'd, I'd search on eBay uh, uh, blood pressure machines, you know, and just look at all the finished auctions. I learned, oh, that brand is like a current brand. That's an old brand. That's that's you know in that kind of stuff is out. And also at the time. And this was in 2005. Uh, it wasn't normal at the time to have internet uh, for your computer uh, uh, you know, outside of your home. So I bought one of the early, I don't think even that was 3G, that was some kind of 2G internet stick. It was kind of expensive at the time. So I would go into the auction, I would look at the stuff and then I would go, I would have my laptop in my car with one of those adapters that lets you plug in your laptop. And I had my 2G and I could go look at the finished auctions uh, on the site which at the time gave me an advantage there weren't other people at that time out in their car um looking up the prices you sort of were stuck or they were some people would get on the phone they had an office they would call their offices they oh there's this stuff here and they would look up the stuff but i i brought it with to the auction on um, this 2g um, stick so this was my advantage at the time
0: that is awesome just to think back to how much technology has evolved over the yeah. years where now you can pretty much run a multi-million dollar business just from your cell phone, right? (laughs) Yeah. Which is crazy. Great. Okay, so then we'll fast forward into your move to China. So how did that come about? And then obviously you spent a lot of time there. So how did you like it over there compared to Chicago?
1: Yeah, it was uh, was great. I lasted 10 years. Um, What got me over there was that, uh, well, first I went there. a A friend of mine's brother from law school told me there was an antique market in Beijing. And he told me, if you can't go to that market and find something that you can bring back to the United States to make money on, you must be an idiot. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll try a vacation to China and go to this antique market for a few weekends in a row. It's a weekend market. And uh, so I did that a single time thinking that was gonna be you know, something cool. Oh, I could pay for one trip by buying stuff. Uh, but it turned out that I went back on multiple additional trips over the next two years uh met a very interesting community of entrepreneurs and people from all over the world uh, including of course china and i decided that's where i wanted to start the next phase of my life and uh at during that time this kind of got me onto the adult side of selling things uh it was i later learned in the same way that working as a lawyer wasn't scalable, buying things from auctions and hauling them to my apartment and then listing them on eBay also was not scalable. So yeah. I wanted. I looked for something on eBay that seemed to have a limited supply. Um, and I, I, picked, I found the niche of latex fetish wear. So that was rubber uh, suits, uh, s and kind of equipment like rubber bags that people are trapped in with all kinds of uh, customizations. And I started, uh, I found a supplier in China from Alibaba. I started listing those on eBay. And so then I started to understand the world of of latex fetish, what kind of stuff was needed. Um, I started making things for people who are big and tall, in particular, uh, who couldn't order stuff from very expensive suppliers in England or Germany. And uh, so when I went to China, my plan was I'm going to learn how to sell my fetishware online with a website uh, directly. That was sort of my only plan. I thought I can support myself with the antique auctions. And I'll also just uh, find
0: someone to make me a website to get off of eBay and onto the internet directly. Let's break that down. Cause there's a lot going on in that couple of sentences. So you honed in on an industry or a niche that you saw there was a high demand and there was a low supply of people competing in that area. And then you went about creating the infrastructure to build that out. And then rather than just sell on eBay, you created your own third-party uh, website that you can control and build that relationship directly with the end customer so that you can you can kind of create your own fan base and follow in at that point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what I did, you know, I had
1: a website built, which at first was, was p- poorly built, I didn't realize, but the most valuable thing I had was the email address of everyone who ever purchased from me on eBay. I mean, fetish wear, not antiques uh whoever purchased fetishware from you and everyone who ever emailed me with a question to ask about the fetishware who wasn't a purchaser so at the time i launched the website this wasn't a huge number of email addresses but let's say it's a, a thousand people you know but these are a thousand fetishware buyers so that's a valuable email list um so when i put up the website i emailed all of those people hey now you can get this stuff from us directly And I'll give you a special deal to be one of our first customers. And we started the business just like that with those maybe thousand contacts I made on eBay.
0: Fantastic. It's all about keeping a really solid list, keeping it current and obviously offering that list what they really want. right? And I think that's key is once you get that message and that branding aligned with the contact itself and what they really want, you're going to hit home run after home run.
1: Yeah, especially in that we were, you know, I I worked out with this workshop, it's not even a factory, because this is all handmade uh, uh, clothing items that's cut and glued latex. Uh, Especially in that email, we say any customizations that you want, that are difficult for you to get from England or Germany, I'm happy to make them for you and at a low cost. For example, we could add zippers anywhere they wanted, we could add, um, you could use very thick uh, rubber, which was very hard to get from other suppliers. We could do all of these things that they could build their sort of dream fetish outfit or uh, piece of equipment. And that was very attractive uh, to to the buyers
0: that they could get exactly what they wanted. Is that what then led you down the invention route? Because you're now customizing what was just a simple product into something very specific, whether it's tall or big, or how did you then go from this e-commerce brand yeah. to inventor? Uh, so
1: actually selling the fetishware online, um, once we sort of really got into it and I started getting customers, I also realized that that wasn't as scalable as I once thought, because that the universe of fetishware buyers compared to the buyers of other things that is relatively small. It's a profitable world, but it's a small world. So uh, I just started looking at other I knew that people didn't what you know, why could I make decent money on fetish wear because there weren't that many people who wanted to get involved in selling it. So the sort of next largest category that's similar would be sex toys. Just figured it out. And um, once I started looking into into sex toys, I realized that there was a gap in the kinds of sex toys available for men. And when I thought about what men would want, they would want something that was automatic. And while there were some automatic products available, they were built, especially at that time, this is 2007 or so, they were built as uh you know you've heard the term adult novelty they were really built as a novelty and not as a, a a product like i always think of my products as something like a kitchen appliance that's an appliance it's not a toy it's not a a novelty it's gonna last like for a, a while right it's well built and exactly. that's something like a like you would buy for your kitchen that's like a waffle maker it's not something that you use five times throw away it's something that works every time you want to use it but at the time uh so anyway, I knew that what men wanted was an automatic device. I first sourced an automatic device that was, uh, and I white labeled it. Factory made something. I had them improve it in some very small ways. And I relabeled that as my product. And at the beginning, we built the business with this product. That wasn't really my invention. It was a product that we made small improvements to. And then only once really after a few years of doing that uh, and learning about the industry, then I was ready to put the money into um really inventing a new product. So for years it was marketing, it was sourcing, marketing, selling, logistics, shipping, but it wasn't really invention until around 2012 is when I said, I need to improve that original Autoblow into something that's like an appliance. Uh, I realized that's what the problem in the market that there were no real appliances. So 2012 to 2014, that was really the development years of the uh, figuring out how to turn the toy
0: into an appliance. And then you had some really unique uh, ways that you funded this. Can you talk a little bit about how you managed to get crowdfunding campaigns going and kind of went viral with that, really?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, after the development process, which was also difficult, I I was a year into that process with one factory in Taiwan that failed. I lost like a full year on that development. Uh, I found the right factory. And once, you know, we got to the end stage, I needed around $300,000 uh, to, you know, for molds and for making the first order. And I didn't have $300,000 uh, at the time. I had an option to take, uh, I forget what it's called. It's a, it's a uh, kind of loan based on your credit card receipts. So we had a decent business going at the time, selling AutoBlow and some other sex toys. Um, and for something like 25 or 30% interest, they'll give you that $300,000 and you owe them uh, in in nine months. You owe it back to them, and you need to pay whatever eighty thousand dollars for the uh, for the uh, luxury of borrowing it from them. So that was my option, uh, which is a much better was which I thought was a much better option than giving equity. There were people interested in in buying a portion of my company for equity, but an eighty thousand dollar one time payment would have been better than equity. But I also didn't really like the idea of an eighty thousand dollar one time payment for borrowing three hundred. And uh, a friend of mine had um, a crowdfunding campaign at the time for a kind of desk that I, I saw worked. I got deeper into this space of crowdfunding. And I thought, Wow, no one's ever crowdfunded a sex toy like this before on, at that time, Indiegogo. So I decided uh, I got the idea like on a Monday. And I think by Friday, I had filmed this embarrassing video and uh, got in and edited and, and, and put it up uh, on, on Indiegogo
0: fantastic and then how much did you end up raising on indiegogo so at the time we pre-sold us
1: uh, you know something like three hundred thousand dollars of that product and uh the campaign itself went viral around the world uh there were links from everywhere and uh the story really and you know we had contacted media about this and the story was first like oh now there's this machine that does you know xyz but the story really became Wait, there's a machine that does X, Y, Z and people are actually buying it. And they've actually, you know, broken a record for funding this kind of product. So uh, that's what got kind of the worldwide media interested. And once a couple of big websites got interested, you know, then those get translated into other countries around the world, then it's a it just becomes a thing. So it became a thing uh, on the Internet around the world for like a week. You had to see this news about this Autoblow two device that got
0: crowdfunded. You know, within 24 hours, by all these people. So, so then let's talk a little bit about from that point. You got funded. You got the molds made. You got the two point created. To go from that point to surpassing eight figure business yeah. is really really impressive. What were some of the big challenges that you uh, that you faced when scaling at that point? Um,
1: so there's two ways that we scaled the business. I mean, one big challenge was getting focused uh we thought that we could use money at first from autoblow to create other brands of sex toys we had at one time a women's brand another men's brand We, we just we sourced all kinds of um products from factories and put our brand on those products we tried to go really wide with the product selection and we scaled very slowly using that profit to create other brands when we did that for years um but with uh, relatively high risk for inventory that sometimes just died because there wasn't enough demand for that kind of uh, other product. And um, once we started uh, selling more auto blows through, um, you know, we sold through web and we started selling to retailers. And once we, once the product um, got into stores across the U S and Canada and into distribution in Europe, then we really saw the potential of, you know, how big the space was just for one good automatic, you know, machine for men. And we closed down all of the other brands. I liquidated about $500,000 of inventory. I sold that to a chain in the United States for about $125,000 just took the loss to get out of the space of all of those products. I shipped them three 50, four foot, whatever, uh, uh, truckloads of my stuff. And they were very happy to get it for their store and then we were very happy to be able to only focus on you know one key website one the autoblow website and only the autoblow brand and from that point once we got super laser focused we found it much easier to i wouldn't say easy but uh we found it much easier at least to focus on building the brand and also all of the people who had seen the autoblow online over the years through our advertising or through our pr efforts all of those um, views of the brand and information had built on itself so the brand sort of grew because of all the exposure that it had and that exposure compounds you know if you're advertised you see something one time maybe you don't buy it but once you've seen that thing 27 times and it's been four years maybe then you're ready to buy the product so
0: we saw the growth i think just from the exposure compounding Fantastic. I think there's a lot of key things there as well. So the main one is don't spread yourself too thin, right? Is to stay focused on what, where the bread and butter is and go deep on that rather than like the wider you go, the less attention you can give every single product.
1: And we, we really, I wouldn't say it's a mistake because we learned the lesson and we learned about all the other niches we had to learn for ourselves that there wasn't a future for us in women's toys. There wasn't a future for us in dildos. There wasn't a future for us in, in things that other people could do better than us. Uh, but we thought that we could just use that money and make a product that was as similar as possible to everyone else's and maybe no one would notice that it's ours and not theirs. But then you're really just competing on price on a commodity. So we got out of, we totally got out of anything that's a commodity product and only into things where we add our unique value um, through marketing and through the technology of our invention.
0: And I think life in general comes back to that point that you just made. It's all about adding value and however you can do that. And however much value you add, you'll find your own place in the market somewhere. So
1: Uh, probably maybe depends. Yeah. If you can add that value or not, but yeah.
0: Well, that's the key. If you don't add the value, (laughs) it won't last long, whatever it is. Uh, We'd like to, I like to end with, with one question just to kind of get a little insight into your mind is, if you had to attribute your success to three factors, how would you apportion between the three? Those three being drive, skill, and luck. Uh,
1: drive, um, I think it's like uh, I think. Let's start with luck, okay? There was some luck. I'll tell you what the luck is. We had. There's two pieces that come in to my mind about luck. One is that. I met my business partner uh, on a freelancing website uh, uh, a long time ago, 2007. And it turned out that that guy was awesome. And we've worked together to really build the business together since then. It's very lucky that I met such a motivated and smart guy uh, who I was able to work with for so long. And we became, you know, great friends like this is hard to meet someone like that, who has that right skill set on the technical and marketing side. He's a technical person, but we do we discuss all our marketing things together. So that was, I think, lucky. Um, What was skill, I think I went to he lives in Romania, I went to Romania, to meet him and make the relationship real. I think that's a step, you know, you might meet someone online, but do you go do you fly to their country and say, you're great, I need to meet you in person. And we need to, you know, take this forward i think that is a kind of skill uh and and an ability to take a risk that maybe other people don't have um the other people other piece that's a little bit luck you know during uh covid for example my business grew a lot and most people almost everyone in the adult product space business grew a lot during covid and you know we had to be prepared uh with skill to receive that luck we needed all of our systems in place our our our, our logistics like lockdown, we needed our um, warehousing. Look, We needed to to set up all, all of those things for many years. So we were able during COVID to take advantage of the luck in a way of the extra volume, people were stuck at home. So our industry got lucky in that way. But I think that's the first time that, um, I think meeting my business partner and this thing that happened during COVID, those were kind of luck. Um, skill, uh, I think we I developed that over the years. Um, uh, by self learning. And, and that was very important, because it's not like someone taught me those skills. I just had to, to do it. Right. So uh, what was the third thing you asked the uh, it was drive? Drive? Yeah. So drive. Um, yeah, I used to be nocturnal. Uh, I would be up when I lived in China. At first, I was in the latex business, I was up all night, I would, you know, hang out during the day, I'd work from 10 at night till four or five in the morning. I had a very strange sleep schedule, so um, I would call that drive as well. And also, I think there's something that you miss, which is patience. Uh, you know, it took us from the day that we started the business to our first, you know, year selling a million dollars. That was several years. Uh, that was I don't know, maybe after three years we got to a million. Then maybe after uh, another three years we got to three or four or five million, right? And then we got to eight figures only after ten years of doing that. So I think being patient uh, is also one of the key things. Someone else might not have the patience. I think most people right now don't have the patience to wait uh, three years to get two million dollars of sales a year. They would become impatient and try to do something else. Uh, so uh, especially because people read about quick success on the Internet or people try to sell, there's a lot of I hate online gurus. Uh, trying to sell people the idea of quick success selling on Amazon or quick success doing anything. I never met a, and I know hundreds of entrepreneurs I, I never met anyone who would say they had a quick success at anything. Uh, the people that I've exactly. especially the people I, I know who are maybe well known in their space, uh, before they were well known, they were unknown and they were unknown for most of their life until maybe they were 40 years old and then oh that guy's doing that. It's like yeah, that guy's been doing that for 15 years. But now he got very successful at it after doing the same thing for fifteen years so
0: yeah, I think that's just the world that we live in right now where the media wants to sensationalize everything and it kind of it brainwashes a lot of people into thinking that that's actually true and people in the know realize that it, it definitely isn't um, yeah Brian, thank you so much for your time and sharing. If people want to reach out to you what's the best way for them to get hold of you uh, I think could just submit a if if you go to the uh
1: our our company website is v uh it's called the company is called actually very intelligent e-commerce if you just google very intelligent e-commerce you'll get to our company site and the contacts go to me and uh if they really want to buy an autoblow there's one then they can go to autoblow.com to buy that but um,
0: and we'll put both of those links down below <laughs> just to make life easy for everyone brian thank you so much for your time it's been an amazing chance. thanks for, ha- for having me